0: I want to just start by asking these questions. What makes you feel needy? What is it about this life, what situations make you feel as though you need to get on the ground and begin to pray? What situations in life make you come to recognize that you are dependent as a human being? What are the types of circumstances that that demands in your heart that you cry out to God? What makes you recognize that you as a human being need God's help? Maybe it's a season where you feel extremely busy. Maybe it's a difficult semester. And in that difficult semester, you start to realize that you are uh, innately needy. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a, a family that's being torn apart. Maybe it's, it's that, that, that that it takes for you to realize you need God to intervene. Maybe for you it's financial situations, financial difficulties that make you get on your knees. Maybe it's a feeling of anxiety or some sort of long-lasting spout against depression. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a death Maybe it's an ongoing sense of apathy. Maybe it's a breakup. I'm not sure what it is that causes you to recognize your own state of dependence and neediness on God, but I would encourage you to diagnose your own heart. I think for me, uh, right now I feel as though I'm in one of those situations where we just got back from Estonia. I get back, and uh, a couple days after I get back, I come to realize that... uh, my, my grandfather just passed away, and so this was on Sunday morning, I found out my grandfather passed away, and so after I was in Estonia, after my wife was in Indiana, and I get home and we're just kind of regathering and recovering after a long time apart and a long Uh, trip across the globe for me and across the country for her, I now realize in a couple days I need to go to Florida. So tomorrow morning I'm waking up, going to Florida, speaking at my grandfather's funeral. I've never done a funeral before, right? And I just begin to sense this neediness within my own heart where I need God to intervene. I need him to help me. The truth is, is that whenever we engage in prayer, we are coming to terms with the fact that we are dependent on someone else. But here's the fascinating point that we are going to see in our passage tonight. Here in 1 Thessalonians 3, we see that we are to seek God independence for all things, even the small things that are mundane and seem to be abundantly normal. Even when life is not going awry, we are to confess and show our dependence on God for everything. Paul here is praying for a healthy church. He's praying for the Thessalonian church. As we've seen, this is a healthy church, and he's praying for them as things are going well, but it becomes clear and evident that they need to recognize everything they do in life and in ministry demonstrates within themselves that they need to depend on god you see one major point we see here is that god uh, he he is worthy of our dependence even when things are going smoothly and maybe especially when things are going well we need god to assist us with the things that seem totally out of our control and we need him to assist us when we think we have everything under control that's what this prayer really teaches us in ways. This prayer reminds us of our utter dependence for God in everything, no matter what the situation. If you aren't there already, we're in First, Tim- First Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Let me read our passage, and then we will begin. So First Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is a short prayer. At the surface of this prayer, things, to be, th- seem, uh, things seem to be pretty straightforward, right? We see three specific elements going on in this prayer. First, Paul is praying that, that God would reunite him with this church in Thessalonica. Pretty simple prayer, God, bring me back to this church. Then Paul is praying that this church would grow in their love for one another, and finally, Paul is praying that as their love grows, he's, he's praying that holiness would begin to take root in this church as they anticipate Christ's second coming. And even though this is a short prayer and the topics that are covered here seem to be pretty easy to follow, I do think it's well worth our time to spend the entire evening here in these three verses. Here's why. First off, this prayer provides us with a number of important details on what a healthy church looks like. Remember, that's part of the main reason we've been in 1 Thessalonians in the first place. And here, in the middle of Paul's prayer, he's teaching us what a healthy church looks like. There's another reason I think it's helpful for us to spend time on these three verses. Here we see... That these ideas, even though they seem simple at first, there is actually something pretty profound at play beneath the surface. So just think about this. For example, Paul is praying that he would be able to go back to this church that seems to be doing just fine. He's willing to leave his missionary work to go back to this church and encourage them. And so I think we need to ask, why? Shouldn't the missionary just move on to the next town where... There aren't Christians. Why would he go back? So there's some questions we need to ask there. Another example of where there's something deeper going on is the fact that Paul is praying that the love that the people have in this church would lead to holiness. In a culture where we have all sorts of misconstrued understandings of what love is, I think it's helpful for us to try to understand why Paul is linking love with holiness. What do these two things have to do with one another? They don't seem to have to do anything with one another, and yet Paul is linking these two ideas. So with, with that said, I think there's something deeper going on here, even when things seem to be pretty simple. So let's look at verse 11 first. Here Paul says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. All right? You just heard that we were able to go back to Estonia this year. You just heard that we're praying and trying to figure out whether or not we're going to be able to return next year and work with the same church. And one aspect of the trip that we just got back from that I appreciated was the fact that we were able to do follow-up ministry with with students that we got to meet last year. Not only that, we got to spend time with the, with the pastor from this church again. We got to spend uh, time with some of the leaders from this church again. We got to reconnect and we got to, to follow up on, on ministry that happened last year, right? As we already pointed out, the two students, Marco and Renee, who we, who, who we saw God working in their lives last year, we were able to go back to them and, for whatever reason they decided to come back to the camp even though they have you know kind of stopped going to church and it was a helpful time to reunite with them encourage them and hopefully spur them on to consider Christ more we saw a lot of the same people a lot of the students in the camp were there last year the vast majority of them were Uh, and I I think that a trip like this is going to help our ministry understand the importance of long-term relationships it helps us to understand the importance of follow-up ministry. I think when we look at Paul's life, we see a great example of someone who's in in the troughs of long-term in-person follow-up ministry. This conversation really began last week. If you were here last week when Andrew uh, preached, he discussed how uh, Paul desired to see the Thessalonians again, and then he sent Timothy to get kind of an update on how things were going within this church. But notice, even though Paul has already gotten an update from Timothy, he still wants to go and see them. Paul still wants to return, even though he has the inside scoop on what's happening within this church. That's because Paul had a genuine and sincere love for the people that were in this church. Second-hand recountings of what was going on wasn't going to cut it for him. He wanted to see these people for himself. I think this is important for us to recognize. In person, ministry is necessary. The fact that ministry takes place so often in our culture outside of personal relationships should be troubling at times, right? Effective ministry ought to happen in the context of personable relationships. Ministry ought to take place over the course of months and over the course of years. It ought to happen in face-to-face interactions and conversations. This is so important for us to realize in, a, in an age where technology has kind of taken hold, right? And, and, and we have the tendency to think all new technology is innately good and there's no, no shadow or dark side to the technology, no downside to the technology that comes into our hands. We have to recognize ministry is more effective in person, right? Texts to your brother or sister in Christ who is hurting, they can be effective, but it's not the same thing as a face-to-face comforting word to that brother or sister. Emails, they can be helpful, but they can only go so far. Phone calls can be helpful, but they can only go so far. FaceTime comes in handy, but it it, it cannot replace face-to-face contact with someone. I was just in Estonia, my wife was in Indiana, and I was able to FaceTime her and my son Theo. And trust me, it's not quite the same as being in the same room, staring into their eyes and being able to actually have a conversation with that person. And yet, we so often approach church as though the technological advancement can just replace what's actually happening in the context of the congregation. So we tell ourselves, eh, I don't wanna get out of bed. I'll just watch the church sermon online, right? I think we're probably all guilty of doing that at some point or another, right? We wake up and we think, yeah, you know what? I think I'd rather like go to the beach today. You know, I can just like put the sermon on a podcast and listen to it on the way home from the beach. That's fine, right? Maybe we uh, think to ourselves, uh, you know... I have the ability to go back to Estonia next year, but I, I just really don't want to. I have Facebook. I can connect with these students on Facebook. Is that the same, though, as actual face-to-face interaction? We cannot allow technology, which may be good, right? Texts, emails, these things are good. And yet we cannot allow them to replace legitimate relationships. Let me share a story about what happened this year. This was kind of a, a dark point in our trip in Estonia, we had, I I literally had to tell a girl there not to contact anyone on our team through messages, through like emails or Facebook Messenger, right? It was a lot of backstory that I'm not going to get into, but we literally had to tell her, you cannot email or text or message anyone on our team. And part of it was because she was seeking help through text messages and through emails and neglecting seeking help from the people in her own church right so she's she's divulging information to us through emails about her suicidal tendencies and then neglecting to talk to her own pastor about it and so out of love we had to tell her that's not okay You can't reach out to us. Instead, you need to talk to your pastor. You need to talk to a a, a counselor. You need to get help that's actually going to be helpful. We can't help you from the other side of the world from behind a computer screen. It's not going to be helpful. She was trying to replace face-to-face relationships with an email relationship, and that's not going to work. Technology can be helpful at times, but it cannot replace personal ministry. Paul is saying, I I, I appreciate that Timothy got to go and give me an update. I appreciate the fact that I have the ability to write you all a letter, but that doesn't cut it. It's not the same as face-to-face interaction. Paul's time, it was valuable, and yet he was willing to sacrifice his time in order to re-engage with this church. And this is helpful. This is another important lesson for us related to long-term relationships and long-term personal ministry. Think about it. Paul's time was valuable. He was traveling around the world telling people who had never heard the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ for the very first time. And yet he's making time to go back to this church and re-engage. Follow up. See how they're doing. You know, think about the pressure that Paul must have felt traveling around the world trying to preach the gospel to all these new towns and new cities. You, you might think he felt pressure to engage in some sort of like drive-by gospel presentations, right? I'm just going to go to this city. I'm going to preach the gospel. And as soon as they hear it, I'm leaving on the way to the next town, right? Essentially some sort of drive-up, drive-through gospel presentation. That's not the way he operated though. That's not the example that he presented for us. No, instead Paul here is, is praying that he's gonna be able to go back to this church and encourage this church in Thessalonica so that they may grow in their faith. You know, we we need to take from this that we can av- we can value evangelism. That's a good thing. Missionary work is a good thing. But let's not value that at the expense of discipleship with believers right both things are important and we ought not put some sort of privilege or preference on one over the other one is not better than the other let me also point out here one final aspect that we can't miss here is that ministry is often consuming time consuming and it's costly many of us would like for ministry to happen on our time, according to our schedule, right? I need to have this conversation with this person. I'm just gonna wait f- for the time to be right. I'm not gonna go out of my way to do that. I'm not gonna go out of my way to talk to that person. Instead, I'm just gonna wait for things just to kind of line up. We would love it if ministry just took place according to our schedule. We would love it if we didn't have to go out of our way to do ministry or, or take up time and energy, that's not the way life works. That's not the way ministry works. We have to sacrifice our time. We have to sacrifice our comfort. That's the way God designed ministry. Look what Paul is saying here. He's willing to go out of his way in the ancient world. Like, I'm going to go out of my way, which means I'm going to either take a horse for multiple days to get to this city, or I'm going to go on a boat for multiple days and get to this other city and stop by there so that I can catch up with them. That's not very time effective. It's not very cost-efficient, and yet he recognizes that that is worth it. That sort of ministry is worth it. It's worth taking time out of your summer to return to a people on the other side of the world so that you can follow up with ministry with them. We need to realize, if we are going to be a healthy church, if, if we are going to be individuals who who. Involve ourselves in a healthy church We need to recognize that a healthy church Is marked by genuine relational ministry And we need to have that sort of mentality If we're going to be healthy church members Then we need to to show that we are interested in ministry Even when it costs us our personal time And our energy Okay, so this is actually related to what we see in verse 12 Where Paul begins to pray that love would abound, right? Don't think of yourself. Don't think of your own time. Start to to orient your life around others. Show love to other people. Look at verse 12. Paul's saying uh, this in verse 12. This is his prayer. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So Paul here, he wants the church. He's praying to God that God would enable this church to grow in love. This is another just normal prayer. God, God, help us to love better, right? It's easy to, to limit our prayers to times of difficulty where there are broken relationships, where there are financial difficulties. Those are good times to pray. And yet there's also this reality that we need to pray when everything's going fine, but we just need to love other people well. We need to recognize that we need God's help for everyday responsibilities of church life. If we want to love other people, we need God to help us do so. Even when we feel like it's easy to love this person, we still need God to influence us and enable us to offer real love to that person. Like Paul in the Thessalonians, we have to depend on God for this. We need to pray to God to this. We need to recognize our lack of ability to love others and ask God to help us. We need to pray that God would give us the energy, even when we, when we feel like we don't have the energy to love others. This in leads, This does lead us to uh, some important questions, though. What does love actually mean, right? This is a, a question that we often ask in the church, and the reason we ask it so often in the church is because the culture has its own ideas of what love is, and we need to constantly compare what Scripture says with what the culture says to make sure we're not being too influenced by what the world around us is telling us in regards to love? I mean, get this. This is a significant question, especially in light of the fact that Jesus says that love is at the center of the greatest commandment, right? Jesus' entire explanation of the greatest commandment is rooted in the idea of love. This means we need to know what love is. In, In Matthew 22, Verse 36, Jesus is asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So, in order to fulfill Jesus' greater commandment, we need to love. And in order for us to love, we first need to know what in the world is Jesus talking about when he refers to love. Well, when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, does he merely mean that we are to treat other people the way we want to be treated? I think that's kind of like a partial yes right there's some truth to that but not necessarily what if you want other people to treat you in an unloving way for instance you want other people to just flatter you like who doesn't want other people to just flatter them right we want other people to give us compliments even when we don't deserve compliments and if we want to treat other people the way we want people to treat us then now we got a problem because the way we want other people to treat us is not in in line with biblical love. You see, there's a problem here. If we think that loving other people is treating them the way that we want to be treated, we may not end up showing them genuine love at all because the type of love that we're looking for isn't biblical love. Love is not merely treating people the way you want to be treated. It's far more complex than that. There's another misunderstanding that we need to address here. In today's culture, we often limit love to some sort of erotic or emotional or romantic experience that we have for someone else. That, I think, is the most common understanding of love in our culture. We want to categorize love as some sort of natural feeling that someone may possess towards someone else. There's a lot of problems with that sort of a definition, especially within our culture. In our culture, here's a major problem, is that we take that definition of love and then we say that that definition of love is the ultimate moral truth in life. So we are told that this type of love is the ultimate good. This sort of passion for someone else, this sort of erotic or emotion or, or romantic feeling geared towards someone else. That's the ultimate good. You know, Jonathan Lehman, he wrote a book uh, titled The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. And here in this book, he's writing about the way our culture defines love and here's what he says. You can justify anything these days by saying that it's loving or motivated by love. So what he's getting at is that the culture's understanding of love is the ultimate moral objective and it trumps any other moral standard. And that's exactly right. You can essentially justify any action under the mantra of love in our day and age, right? I committed adultery for love. And if you're reading a story that's written well, you start to side with the adulterer because it was for love. I divorced my wife and abandoned my children for love. Again, in the right context, you might start to think that the ultimate good being love justifies this man leaving his wife and children for the sake of love. I abandoned my community. I abandon my church for love. I abandon the counsel of my parents for the sake of love. This is the the mantra of the LGBTQ movement. Any relationship is appropriate as long as it is according to the ultimate moral objective, love. In our society, the very idea of love has turned into the ultimate guiding principle that trumps all other principles. As long as your decision was made for love, then no one has the right to question you. No one has the right to challenge you. And all of this gets even more confusing when we begin to recognize that people begin to define love by themselves, right? I get to define love for myself. So now... The ultimate objective in life, I get to define. I get to define what ultimate love is. And, and, and no one now has the right to challenge me. No one has the right to challenge my definition of love. Are you, are you sensing the problem here? <laughs> right? Our definitions of love are just completely subjective. And yet those subjective or individually defined definitions of love are meant to be the guiding principle for our society. You know, if that's the case, then no one has the right to correct you. If that's the case, then no one has the right to speak truth into your life. As long as you are doing things according to your own definition of love, you're in the clear. Well, contrary to what our society says, we don't get to decide what love is. We don't get to define love for ourselves. Here's why. Because God is the ultimate definition, the ultimate source of love because it's part of his very nature, right? God is love. He is the spring of love. God is the fount of love from which all love flows. God is the very form of love. God cannot be anything other than love. God cannot act outside of love and therefore we cannot know, God, know love unless we first look to God. He's the ultimate objective standard of what love is, and therefore, if we're going to get our understanding of love right, we first need to look to God. And we could go to all sorts of Bible passages that will show us what biblical love looks like according to God. We can even look at the example of Jesus, because Jesus shows us the very nature of love through his death on the cross in the place of Sinners. And yet, before we go to those other places, I just think it'd be helpful to look at the very next verse, verse 13. Because here, Paul begins to give us this very important detail about love that we cannot miss. So let me read this again. And I'm going to start in verse 12 so that you you can get the logic. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Notice Paul's train of thought. The prayer here is that the church would pursue love and that as they pursue love, it would have a result of holiness. So according to Paul... And according to his prayer here, the goal of biblical love is actually holiness. That is a massive detail. We cannot miss if we are going to understand love according to the Bible. We cannot miss the fact that God is telling us love cannot be separated from holiness. True biblical love ought to result in someone else's holiness holiness. Holiness and love go hand in hand. You cannot have biblical love without holiness. So as we love other people well, the result of our love ought to be that person's pursuit and experience of holiness. The most loving thing for me to do for my brother or sister in Christ is to pursue that person or, or to help that person pursue Holiness. So with that said, I want to think about some ways in which uh, the church, the church, ought to practice different things in order to foster this sort of love that results in holiness. So think about this for a moment. When we think about the way love should feed into holiness in the context of the church, we need to consider how the New Testament calls the church to practice church membership and church discipline. And maybe you're thinking, I have no clue what church membership or discipline have to do with love and holiness. Let me fill this out a little bit. These two church practices are meant to help us love one another with an eye towards that other person's pursuit of holiness. So let's first look at the idea of church membership. What is church membership? Church membership is a public commitment that someone makes to the church body. In, in church membership, we are publicly committing to the other people in our local church. And we are committing to one another and telling one another, I am going to love you and help you pursue holiness. And I would love it if you reciprocated that for me and helped me pursue holiness. That's really what true church membership is. Church membership its a public announcement to the other members in the church. I am committed here. And I want to commit myself to you and I hope that you would commit yourself to me. And the same can be said of church discipline. Both of them have an eye towards loving relationships that will ultimately result in holiness. Remember, church discipline is explained in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. Essentially, church discipline is a a mechanism that Jesus gave us in order to discourage sin in the midst of the church and promote holiness. Believe it or not, church discipline is actually a loving way to publicly deal with sin in the context of the church. I mean, think about this for a moment. Uh, When sin begins to run rampant in a congregation, it's just inevitable that people start gossiping and talking about it and people are going to handle it they're going to handle it in some way shape or form. And so Jesus comes along and he tells us how to handle it in Matthew 18. So people are going to handle it in one shape or way or form, but Jesus says, here is the way you ought to handle it. Here's the way you ought to talk about sin in your midst. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. We have to just talk to the person. But that's at the heart of Jesus's command in Matthew 18. He's telling us when you see your brother stumble, go to that brother. If you see your sister stumble, go to her and address her for her sin. Talk about it. Encourage them to, to get out of that way of life. You see, the point of church discipline is really tough love, right? We all know what tough love is. It's what a parent has for the two-year-old who's screaming, right? Tough love is is the willingness to tell the child no. Even when the child wants something and screams for it, right? The point of tough love is to help someone pursue holiness. We show other people love when we deal with sin in our midst. That's what church discipline is all about. We call it out, but we call it out in the right ways. We don't let sin run rampant in our midst. Instead, we seek to appropriately deal with it as Jesus would call us to. And our goal is always holiness. Remember what Paul says here in verses 12 and 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. We love one another with an eye towards the other person's holiness. One way that we do that is through church membership and one way we do that is through church discipline. But let me point out one final aspect of this passage that we need to take account of uh, as we move forward in these verses. And it's the fact that Paul is praying all of these things in anticipation of Jesus' second coming. He's saying, may he establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Over and over again throughout this letter, we've already seen Paul talking about the second coming of Jesus, and in the weeks to come, we're going to see Paul talking about the second coming of Jesus all the more. We've seen this over and over again, and we're going to continue to see it. In fact, throughout the pages of Scripture, we see the second coming is essential to our understanding of the gospel. Maybe you're here right now, and you're not a Christian, and you're wondering what in the world I'm even talking about when I say Jesus has a second coming, right? He's coming back. What What are you even talking about? Well, let me just point out that the message of Christianity is centered around the person of Jesus. And, and when we come here as Christians, we're always seeking to better understand Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection from the dead, and his second coming. And we're seeking to understand how we should live in light of the fact that he is coming again and the fact that he died for sin and rose from the grave. You know, throughout the Bible, when we, especially when we read the New Testament, that's what the New Testament is all about. Jesus died, he rose, he's coming back. Here's what we should think about this. Here's how we should live in light of this. You know, people like Paul who wrote this letter, 1 Thessalonians, that's what he's doing. He's helping us to understand Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and second coming. You see, here's what Christianity teaches. It teaches that God became a man, and this God-man's name was Jesus. And Jesus, he came in order to live a perfect life, so that he may deal with the most crucial problem humanity faces. And that most crucial problem that humanity faces is the human heart, and the human heart's struggle with sin. So Jesus, he came and he lived a perfect life on earth so that his perfection might be applied towards other people who through faith in him turned to him. And then after Jesus lived this perfect life of righteousness, then he died. He died on a cross. And he died so that our sin might be placed on him. So there's this exchange that happens. His perfect life is credited to us. Our wretched life is credited to him. And then Jesus, after dying, proves that he did not perish. He rose from the grave after three days. And as he rose from the grave, he was proving that his death for sin was actually effective. And he proved that his death for sin was effective by rising from the grave, conquering death. Death was the penalty for sin. Death is the penalty for transgressions. And then Jesus tells his disciples, after he rises from the dead, that he will one day return, and then he ascends to the Father. So right now, as we speak, this is the Christian message. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, ruling from heaven over all of humanity. And yet, one day Christ will return, and when He returns, He will be sitting on a throne on a new earth that He creates. He will He will abolish sin. He will abolish death. He will abolish pain. He will abolish all hurt, tears, and then He will refashion this world, and then He will reign on this world, reign from a throne. That's the message of Christianity. That's what we are living in anticipation for, the day Christ returns and establishes his kingdom on earth. We await the second coming of Christ and we are to live holy lives as we wait. You know, the reality that Jesus will return to earth to establish his eternal kingdom, it's actually meant to be a motivation for us to live holy lives, to seek to use our time well. It's not... A fear tactic. It's not the point of the, the second coming of Jesus. It's not the church trying to convince you to turn to Jesus now and they just invented this idea that Jesus is going to return one day. No. It's actually meant to be a motivation for us to live holy lives as we wait for Jesus to return. So here's the reality we are praying for all of these things. Again, we, we are praying for the opportunity to have personal face-to-face ministry. We are praying that God would help us to love one another. We're praying that that love would then result in holiness. And while we may be tempted to just pray for life things that seem to be difficult, while we seem to pray for, for times when we are struggling with sickness when we are struggling with death or or, or the struggles of life, God is actually calling us to pray for the typical areas of life, the typical aspects of our life. And the reason that he is calling us to pray for these things is so that we might have a mindset of dependency in this limited amount of time that we have on earth. Our time for ministry is limited. Our time to pursue holiness is limited. Our time for evangelism is limited because one day we will either die or Christ will return. And so we need to pray that even in the, the everyday mundane things, God would intervene so that he would, he would enable us supernaturally to, to maximize our time and our effectiveness here even in the mundane tasks, even in loving our neighbor, even in loving the person sitting next to me. Let us pray that he would maximize our time here on earth as we anticipate Jesus' second coming. Let's pray. God, we look forward to